Good morning. It is uh, an honor, it's a blessing to be here once again uh, to be able to uh, speak from God's Word. Um, I, I, I will say if, uh, if, if you are here this morning and you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have uh, someone in the back who is more than happy to give you a copy. If you don't own a copy of God's Word at home, then you can take that home with you as our gift to you. All right, so I think it was just about four weeks ago I had an opportunity to speak to you uh, from Romans, or <laughs> you got me on a Romans thing, Hebrews chapter 6. Yes, we are in Hebrews. Um, I will say it's a little different now because Justin's sitting right there, so I'm, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> so I got to like, if there's like, if something goes wrong, just <laughs> go ahead, nod, give me a signal. We'll, we'll try to, to work with that. Um, my mother and my sister are here joining us this morning, so I'm excited to have them give me feedback on the ride home after the service. But anyway, um, we're looking this morning at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verse 1 and going through verse 14. If you're old enough... You'll remember this hit song from the 80s. Jesse is a friend, yeah. I know he's been a good friend of mine. But lately something's changed that ain't hard to define. Jesse's got himself a girl and I want to make her mine. You know, I wish that I had Jesse's girl. Where can I find a woman like that? Now, I'm pretty sure there might be a few women here in the church that, uh, when you were a teenager, had a poster of Rick Springfield on the wall growing up. No? My sister? Yes. Rick Springfield? All right. For those of you who don't know who that is, you can Google that uh, <laughs> 80s heartthrob that he was. Um, you know, it's human nature to always think that the other guy has it better. That's the point behind the song, Jesse's Girl, right? That the grass is always greener on the other side. And we talk about keeping up with the Joneses because they clearly have better lives than ours. They have a better house, a better car, better children. A recent Gallup survey revealed that a third of all people are not content with what they currently have. They want to move. They want a better home. To live in a better city or a better state or to have a better job. The reality of it is that more often than not, the other guy really doesn't have it any better than you do. Jesse's girl is not really all that. And finding a better job is probably more elusive than searching for the lost Ark of the Covenant. Although, I do dream about being Indiana Jones. I think that would be a really cool job. Everybody wants something better, right? But how about when it comes to faith? Do we find ourselves thinking along those same lines that there may well be a better way to a, a happier, more fulfilling life or a better way to find a clear conscience or a heavenly or perhaps earthly reward, especially when times get tough or don't seem to be going the way we would like them to be going? You know, God's plan is not in line with mine. Maybe I can find something better. Well, we face challenges every day from those who would claim to have a better way. And some entice us, and some ridicule us. I recently wrote a review of uh, Michael Shermer's book, 
the moral arc, how science makes us better people, in which this former Christian-turned-atheist claims that belief in God and the Bible is the very thing that's holding us back as a society. And if we want to be better people, and if we want to see a better, more moral world, then we should abandon such beliefs and embrace reason and science. Science, so uh, says Shermer, is a better savior than Jesus. This morning, my hope is that as we look at God's word, as we read about how the author of Hebrews argues and makes the case that Christ's sacrifice is our only means of obtaining eternal redemption and freedom from sin, that we too would have complete confidence that there is no better way than Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's look at Hebrews 9, starting in verse 1. Uh, There's a lot of historical detail in this passage, but I, I don't want you to think that this is not relevant to the modern believer because it truly is. And I hope God uh, speaks to you this morning through it. I know he will. Beginning with verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the seat, the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. And may I decrease so that he increases. 
you know, it's easy to get caught up in uh, the symbolism of the, the tabernacle. And, I, and I, meant, I, I will admit to you that I wrestled with this. Uh, how far should I go into this? There's just so much meat in this passage. But I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that this section served a very practical purpose for the believers that our author was addressing. So if you remember from uh, a, a few messages ago when I spoke on Hebrews 6, the author of Hebrews is likely writing to Jewish believers in Rome who were confronted with intense persecution. It's important that we not minimize the reality of their situation, of what they faced. Loved ones being butchered for their faith in Christ. The church forced underground into the catacombs to bury their dead and to conduct worship services. And if most scholars are correct, and this epistle was written in A.D. 67, then Peter and Paul have been martyred. It's been at least 30 years since Christ was crucified, and many are starting to wonder if he's going to return at all. The pressure to return to their Hebrew roots was intensifying. And so we find, or we speculate, that, that perhaps in this situation, they begin to question, you know, should, should we give up? Should we look for another way? Or, or maybe we should return to what we knew before we became Christians. And that's, you know, it's not uncommon that when we face trying times, for us to have doubts and to wonder if there might be a better way. And here in Hebrews 9, our author begins by confronting that temptation head on. So he starts with a bit of reminiscing about the tabernacle in verses 1 through 5. So the tabernacle was a source of great pride for the Jewish people, even more so than the temple. It was essentially a traveling tent that functioned as a dwelling place For God's presence. So wherever God's people moved when they were wandering through the wilderness and then into the promised land, the tent would move with them. And it was with them from the time of Moses all the way up through the time of King Solomon when Solomon's temple was built. The Holy of Holies here in this passage called the Most Holy Place was the inner portion of the tabernacle. It's where the very presence of God resided hovering over the Ark of the Covenant, which functioned as his throne, his seat. And this, of course, our author tells us, was behind a veil. A reminder that because of sin, God and his people were separated. And so sacrifices were made daily for the sins of the people. And our author goes through each item located in the, taper, in the tabernacle. And, and I'm going to refer to verse 5 and agree that of these things we cannot now speak in detail. But verse 9 tells us that all of it was symbolic for the present age. The word here, it's the same word in the New Testament for parable. It, it was used to communicate greater truths that's what the the tabernacle did that worship was a type of something greater and each part of it carried spiritual meaning and pointed to the need for christ so our author's purpose is not to focus on these items but instead to contrast the old covenant represented in the tabernacle with the new covenant that comes with christ 
And so under the old system, he talks about how sacrifices had to be made continually for the sins of the people. And with the coming of Christ and the new covenant, sins have been dealt with once for all. In the tabernacle, only the high priest could enter the holy holies, and then only one day each year. But with the coming of Christ, with his perfect sacrifice, God's presence is open to all. And this is incredible truth. So, and I, I don't want us to miss this, you see, because our author here in these verses is putting together what today I think we would consider a strong apologetic for the superiority of Christ, that Jesus is better. You can almost hear, you know, him saying in the background, how could anyone ever consider going back to the old system? Why would we want to go back to the weak, useless, obsolete system as Hebrews 8, 13 tells us? It was ineffectual because it never ultimately addressed our fundamental problem, our sinful nature. So this is where I I see, you know, the first relevance of this passage to us as modern Christians. Just as the Jewish believers were being pressured to consider a return to the Hebrew faith, we also are challenged daily by those who would try to convince us that there's a better way, that the Christian faith is not the answer. So here's my first point. I believe that we must be undaunted when facing challenges from those claiming to offer better ways. We must be undaunted. You see, for Christians today, it's, it's unlikely that a return to Judaic faith is a live option unless you grew up in a, a Jewish home. But, but think about it. We're surrounded by people who are denigrating Christian faith constantly, telling us to give it up, compelling us to seek out better ways. We have a lot of young college students in our church, and, and I know they hear this drumbeat constantly from professors and campus activists. That belief in God is is like believing in fairy tales. Christ is a a myth. It doesn't make a difference. I can't resist sharing this quote from uh, atheist Richard Dawkins, who loves to point specifically to the Old Testament when criticizing Christianity. So I will admit, I thought of Richard Dawkins when I read this passage. This is his quote. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's a mouthful. Now, I'm not even going to attempt to define all those terms, but, uh, but I think you get the gist, right? And I already mentioned Michael Shermer. He, you know, we can go on and on. The challenges come at us from every side. It's not just from intellectual sources. And so for those who listen to these critics and they hear their arguments and are genuinely questioning their faith, or for those who are enticed by an alternate lifestyle, What would you say to them? What would you say to that person who's genuinely questioning whether Jesus is the best way? 
I'd be willing to bet that each of us here this morning knows someone who has either abandoned their faith in Christ or is struggling with it. In fact, there may even be some here this morning who are really struggling and they have questions. And they're wondering when they hear these words in Hebrews chapter 9, are are these words true? Does this make a difference in my life? And I'm convinced, church, that if we truly believe that there is no better way than Jesus, then we should be undaunted when facing the challenges that culture is constantly throwing at people of faith. Whether it's atheism, nihilism, religious pluralism, hedonism, ethical naturalism, scientism, whatever ism you can think of, throw them all in there. None, not one of them, is able to fully account for the existence of mankind and our purpose in this universe. And none of them, none of them, is able to address and solve the issue of humanity's sin. Only Christ can do that. And church, you don't have to be an expert apologist or some kind of deep theologian to help those who are questioning whether Jesus truly is the better way. But we should at least be able to point them in the right direction towards Scripture, resources, or other people who, who truly have a calling to answer those kind of questions. But we should never be afraid to tackle the difficult questions of our faith. We should never shrink back when those voices start blaring. We hold the truth. I remember many years ago, a parent calling, calling me up to complain about uh, our apologetics class. I work in a Christian school. We have a uh, senior level apologetics class where we help our students uh, defend their faith for when they go off to college. And this parent was troubled that their child was coming home at night talking about issues and asking questions that they didn't understand and they couldn't answer. And they thought that was wrong. I simply asked them this question. Would you rather your child ask you those questions around the dinner table or just wait until they get to college and ask their professor? Because I can guarantee you most likely what his answer is going to be. So what do we do when the world comes at us with so-called better ways and better solutions? Avoid the discussion. Pretend it doesn't exist. Or follow the example of our author, Hebrews, who took the time to address this challenge head on and present a strong case for the superiority of Christ, that there is no better way than Jesus. We must be undaunted when facing these challenges, confident that Jesus and the Christian faith and the entirety of the biblical worldview is better. But there's a second, far more significant way in which I believe this passage speaks to us today, and it's the heart of our author's argument. See, I'm convinced that many Christians become weary in their walks with God Because they haven't truly grasped the extent of what Christ has accomplished for them on the cross. They're plagued by feelings of guilt and shame. And at some point, they give up. They say, this this isn't working for me. 
But see, because of what Christ has done on the cross, because of what uh, has been accomplished in the eyes of God, we can live our lives free from the bondage of sin. And so this is my second point this morning. We must be unencumbered by feelings of guilt and shame. We must be unencumbered by feelings of guilt and shame. So in our author's uh, apologetic here, for the new covenant, uh, I think the most notable deficiency of the old covenant is that while it might have been good for the cleansing of the flesh, it could never provide a clean conscience. In verse 9, it states that the gifts and sacrifices offered in the tabernacle could not perfect the consciousness of the worshiper. Then in verse 14, it mentions our consciences being purified from dead works. So what exactly does it mean to have a purified conscience or or a clean conscience? See, I'm convinced it means being able to stand in front of God with full assurance, full confidence that sin has been defeated once and for all. It means no longer being under the curse of sin. So let me explain here. When we look at verse 7, our author mentions that the high priest would only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. No one else could enter. And he could only enter by the blood of a bull, which our text tells us was offered first for himself for his own sins. He was the sinner. The people were a sinner. This is the point of the sacrificial system. And the details of this are spelled out in Leviticus 16, which states that the shedding of blood was necessary lest the high priest die. You see, the connection is very clear in Scripture. In our sinful state, We cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. He is holy and perfect. And we are ridden with sin. I know you're familiar with these verses. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 adds, For the wages of sin is death. See, the Bible is very clear that all of us are sinners, every single one of us, and we all, what we all deserve because of our sin is death. So in essence, we all are under a death penalty. There's a guilty verdict looming over us. And the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant involved innocent animals being sacrificed on behalf of the people. But it never provided a full pardon for sin. It never transformed the people into new creations. It was at best a temporary reprieve. And their deaths, the deaths of the animals that were sacrificed were not sufficient to atone for the sins of mankind. Hence, it never provided a clean conscience, as our author says. So when every worshiper went to the the tabernacle to make an offering, they were consciously aware that it would never be enough. It would have to be repeated. There would be future sacrifices, for there would be future sins and future mistakes. For their entire life, they were locked into this endless cycle of going to the temple, making a sacrifice, making an offering, coming back year after year, trying to atone for their mistakes. And here's the problem. While we as Christians live under the new covenant and Christ has made 
a sacrifice for us once and for all that is perfect, I think there are lots of Christians still living in that old covenant mentality. I really do. You know, when I first uh, became a Christian, I was living out what I like to refer to as a game board mentality. Game board mentality. Let me explain. So I, I'd be praying, I'd be reading my Bible, I'm going to church, I'm growing, I'm getting excited, I'm focusing on Jesus, everything's going great, and then bam, I'd make some mistake. I'd blow it some way. I'd sin. And I would literally tell myself this. I would say, Mike, I guess you've got to go back to square one. You've got to start all over again. Now, I'm sure you've all played those games where there's a starting spot and the object of the game is to see who can be the first to get to the finish line. And there's always either cards that you draw or squares that you land on to say, go back to go or go back two spaces or skip a turn and Monopoly, go to jail. I mean, all these different things. But that's that kind of same mentality that I would have. So I would mess up. I'd be overcome with shame. I'd, I'd hide out from God because I was just like, man, I blew it. He's got to be angry at me, right? And, I'd, and I, I'd skip church. And I wouldn't hang out with Christian friends because I feel like they could see it. I wasn't worthy to go to church. And I'd wonder if God still loved me. And I'd think about, what do I have to do to make it up to God? Now, maybe I'm the only one that's ever felt like that. It's possible. But that's old covenant thinking. That's old covenant thinking. Do you see it? I mean, it's, when Christ accomplishes what he accomplishes with the new covenant, with his death on the cross, is a once-for-all solution to our deepest problem. He entered the Holy of Holies by His own blood. He became our sacrifice. He took on our death penalty, what we deserved. He died in our place. And I love that phrase phrase there in verse 12. Once for all. It's a contrast to that endless cycle of tabernacle worship. It's used three times in the entire book of Hebrews and it's always emphatic. It expresses the finality of Christ's work. He did it once for all. There's no other sacrifices needed. There's there's no other religion that can do it better. There's no other path that we could seek out because the work of the redemption is secured. It's finished in Christ. So no longer do we have to worry if the next time we make a mistake we'll be cast aside. Or lose our salvation. Or cause God to stop loving us. No matter how many times we fail. No matter how many times we mess up. Nothing can change our standing before God. Our sins are paid for once for all. Past, present, and future. We are not covered by the blood of bulls and goats. We are covered by the blood of Christ. I love that verse that, uh, that was shared earlier from Romans. I'm, I'm going to go to Romans 8.1, one, one of my favorite verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One modern translation puts it this way, and I love this. The truth is that no condemnation now hangs over the head of those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And yet so many Christians, when they mess up, when they sin, they're the first ones to condemn themselves. Talk about freedom we have in Christ. No condemnation. Hebrews tells us that knowing that reality frees us to truly serve the living God. We're freed from constantly trying to earn forgiveness and make up for our mistakes and appeasing judgment. You may remember this from several messages ago. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know what he's talking about right there? We can enter the holy, holy. That's what he's talking about. Let's draw near with confidence into the very throne room of God before him. And it's not judgment and wrath and condemnation. It is mercy and grace that we need and that we will find. What a contrast to the high priest, right? Who would come in fear, never knowing if he would be struck dead because of hidden their unconfessed sin, we come into the Holy of Holies with confidence and a clear conscience, knowing that our sins have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. I'd like to bring us uh, to a close this morning with just one last way in which I think this passage speaks to the modern Christian. Because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, because He is the only one who can once for all provide freedom from sin, I believe we have no choice but to maintain that He's the only way to heaven. That's, that's our message, church, that we must proclaim. So this is my final point. We must be unwavering in our commitment to the belief that Jesus is the only way. Now, I think that uh, not only is this the natural implication of what the text is telling us here, but it speaks to one of the biggest reasons why some Christians or some millennials turn away from Christ and they say, I, I don't know if I want to have anything to do with Christianity. See, they, they simply can't accept the idea that salvation is exclusively found in one source. We live in a pluralistic society, right? When we counter people of other faiths and beliefs that are contrary to the Bible, we do that on a daily basis. And many Christians find it uncomfortable to to approach somebody and say, well, you know, that's great that, you know, you have that belief system, but Jesus, Jesus is the only way. Somehow that sounds rude, right? We don't want to offend people by saying things like that. We want to be respectful. And of course, our society puts a high premium on being tolerant and not offending others. And so we are truly swimming against the cultural tide here on this one. But let me offer a suggested response to those who would criticize us Christians of being narrow-minded by saying that Jesus is the only way. When someone asks you, 
why you Christians say that Jesus is the only way, here's how I think you should respond. We don't. We don't say that. All right, now before you bring in me heretic, let me finish, okay? The fact is that we Christians, we don't make that claim that Jesus is the only way. That's, that's not some doctrine that the church made up a couple hundred years ago because we thought it would help church attendance and keep people from wandering off. Jesus is the one who makes that claim. He's the one who said he's the only way. And we're just repeating what he said. And we're just echoing back what our author here in Hebrews 9 is saying. Think of John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Doesn't get more exclusive than that. No one comes to the Father except through me. How can Jesus make such a claim? What qualifies him to be, able to, make, to be able to say that there is no other way by which we can know the Father, no other way by which we can have eternal life? The answer is right here in Hebrews, isn't it? He entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, Jesus can make such a claim because he's our perfect sacrifice. He died in our place. He shed his blood for our sins. So if you put Christ up against all the other world religions, it becomes pretty obvious, pretty clear right away that he can claim to be the only way because he's the only one who died for our sins. He's the only one who took our place. And so instead of asking, how can we tell others that Jesus is the only way? I want to ask you, how can we not tell others that he is the only way? How can we be silent on that message, on something that important? if we care about the eternal destiny of those we love, if we want our friends and co-workers who we see struggling in the bondages of sin to experience what it means to have a clear conscience, to have true freedom, then how can we not tell them that there is no better way than Jesus? Many, many years ago, um, I served as a chaplain in the Army Reserves and uh, down in uh, El Paso, Texas. And uh, um, I was responsible for maybe four or five different units in the area. And uh, I had this area chaplain who uh, would come down every once in a while and then we would go to the facilities and we would hold services for soldiers and do all sorts of great things in ministry there. And I remember this one time where he came down and he said, Chaplain Dewey, I got a great, we're, we're going to go over to the, uh, the Dyer facility here, and it's, uh, it's a big one. There's like, you know, this weekend, there's like 600 soldiers there, and we're going to have a service. We're going to have an interdenominational service, and I want you to preach the sermon. I said, okay, and this is Saturday. I'm thinking, okay, I wasn't prepared to preach a big sermon and everything like that, so this, all right, no problem. He says, all you got to do is take care of the sermon. I'm going to plan out the whole rest of the service, 
I'll make up posters, I'll publicize it, I'll go to all the company commanders, the battalion commanders, I'll go to the brigade commander, I'm going to get them to, to make sure they let their soldiers out at 10 o'clock. That's when we're going to do it, 10 o'clock Sunday morning. I said, all right, let's do it. Now, I, I want you to know that as uh, an army chaplain, I was never asked to compromise my beliefs. No one told me I couldn't say certain things. So if I was holding a Christian service for soldiers, I could talk. I mean, I can go through the Bible. I can tell them what I believe. Jesus is the only way. Oh, man, no problem. But what I couldn't do as a chaplain is I couldn't have a Jewish service, invite everyone in, and then tell them Jesus is the only way. That would get me in trouble. So I'm thinking interdenominational service. I got this. No problem. Interdenominational means Christian denominations, right? All Christian, general Christian. We're good. I go home, pray, say, Lord, what do you want me to speak on? I, I, I don't know what, what, you know, what do you want me to share? And you know the verse that kept coming to mind? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I, I mean, I, was, I had it all. I'm, I'm going to bring the word, man. Jesus is the only way. You can't get to heaven except through Jesus. I'm sorry, I slipped into a little preaching voice there. But. I go Sunday morning to the, the facility, and the first thing I see as I go to the main door is a big sign that says, Interfaith Service Today at 10. Chaplain Dewey speaking. Now, there's a difference between interdenominational and interfaith. I thought, okay, maybe he just got confused. And, you know, normally when I do these services, 10 to 15 soldiers come max. It won't be that big of a deal. I'm still going to preach on John 14, 6. I get in there. The chaplain comes up, says, oh, Chaplain Dewey, this is so awesome. I talked to all the, the, the leadership Everyone's going to let everyone go at 10 o'clock. We're going to get a big crowd. Okay, all right, okay. And you'll never guess what. There are five Muslim soldiers here from Germany, and they've all agreed to get up and talk about the five pillars of Islam during the service. All right, this is an interfaith service. Okay, great. I'm starting to panic a little bit. Oh, yeah, and I also got uh, this Mormon guy who's going to get up and and then I got this other guy who is going to get up and, and, and play John Lennon's Imagine on the guitar. You know, it's the, the, the atheist hymn, you know, Imagine There's No Heaven. I'm like, this is some wild stuff. And I'm panicking. I said, well, chaplain, I need to go uh, to a room and just look over my message real quick. So I'm going to go and hang out until 10 o'clock. And I go in this room, man, I'm telling you, I was mad. I, was, I said, Lord, what are, what are you doing? You, you lead me to speak on John 14, 6, Jesus is the only way, and then I come here and all the, I'm going to get fired. I'm gonna, they're going to like strip me of my rank and then fire me. I'm going to be in trouble. And I'm crying out to God and I'm saying, what do I do? And I felt the peace of God just tell me, you speak what I've told you to speak. I'll take care of the rest. So I get into this room. I see there's like a hundred chairs set up. I'm like, oh, Lord, please don't bring a hundred people here. <laughs> I mean, this is re- I'm, I'm confessing to you some bad thoughts here, but I'm like, don't bring a Don't bring a hundred people. And I go up to the front and I sit down in a chair and I keep my head down. and say, Lord, Lord, please. And I and I, and I could see at the corner of my eyes. The room starting to fill up, you know, 30, 50, 100 standing room only. 
And I'm thinking, what's going on here? And of course, the service starts and the Muslim soldiers get up and they each share in the different pillar of Islam and we're rocking out to imagine. <laughs> and then it comes to my time to speak. And again, God gives me peace. And I say, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, John 14, 6, I get up there and say, Jesus is the only way because Jesus is the only one that died on the cross. All other paths lead nowhere, only Jesus saves. Only spoke about 10 minutes. I sat back down, put my head down, said, Lord, let's let this end so I can get out of here. What does this chaplain do? He gets up and says, wow, Chaplain Dewey, I just feel the Spirit leading us to call for an invitation right now. I was like, no. (laughs) Are you insane? An invitation? Oh, I left out that when I was up there speaking, looking straight ahead, the brigade commander standing in the back, (laughs) full bird colonel, just staring me down the whole time. I said, I am definitely getting fired. I kept my head down and and the song's playing and and I can hear people moving forward. I'm like, Lord, Lord, please. And I notice just boots along, standing in a line. 12, 15 boots coming down to accept Christ. And I hear the chaplain's voice. He says, Chaplain Dewey, I want you to come up. I want you to stand in front of these soldiers and I want you to pray for each one of them. And I'm thinking, man, I'm going to talk to this guy afterwards. I walk up there. I got my head down. I'm embarrassed. I pick up my eyes. It's one of those Muslim soldiers. I go to the next soldier. It's another Muslim soldier. I go to the next one and another. If I had not been faithful to preach God's word and declare that there's no better way, those soldiers would have missed that opportunity to hear what Jesus did for them. They gave their lives to him. We cannot hold that message back from others. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to be called your children, to know your salvation. And God, as we look at this word today, may may you just overwhelm us with confidence in knowing that you are the only way, that there is no better way, that when we hear the voices in our society clamoring, we will be undaunted. When we hear our own conscience condemning us, we will be unencumbered and we will look to your cross knowing that you have taken it all away. And Lord, help us to be unwavering in the truth. There is no better way than Jesus. Amen.